Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. is Democracy Now! I know that a lot of Republicans, their dream is to cut Social Security and Medicare. Well, let me say this. If that's your dream, I'm your nightmare. In Florida, President Biden blasts Republican Senator Rick Scott for proposing to put Medicare and Social Security on the chopping block. We'll speak to legendary consumer advocate Ralph Nader about efforts to privatize Medicare and Social Security, as well as fighting corporate crime, the launching of his newspaper, The Capitol Hill Citizen, and more. Then The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. The person who called me was unlike most of the workers who called. He wasn't from Mississippi or Louisiana. He wasn't either white, black, or Latino. He was an Indian man flown in from India, calling from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I thought, what was an Indian man doing coming here to clean up uh, after Hurricane Katrina? We'll speak to longtime immigrant labor organizer Sakit Soni about how immigrant workers have been lured to the United States and trapped in forced labor to help rebuild communities after climate disasters. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The death toll from Monday's massive earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has passed 22,000, with the numbers exponentially increasing as pressure mounts on the United Nations to provide urgent aid to northwestern Syria, which was already in dire need of humanitarian assistance due to 12 years of civil war and international sanctions. Aid groups have escalated demands on Turkey's government to allow in more cross-border aid and are warning of a secondary disaster amidst worsening conditions in rebel-held areas of northern Syria. Meanwhile, authorities in the hardest-hit regions of Turkey have begun burying the dead in mass graves. This is a survivor near the epicenter of one of Monday's two largest quakes. The gravity of the event is very deplorable, doomsday itself. There are thousands of injured and dead. You see, these are graves that are being newly opened. We've already started to bury people here. Believe me, there's no family left without pain. Most people don't even know what to do. We don't know what will happen. Former Vice President Mike Pence has received a legal summons from Jack Smith, the special counsel overseeing criminal investigations into former President Trump. The subpoena reportedly seeks documents and testimony related to Trump's bid to overturn the 2020 presidential election, culminating in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. It's not clear whether Pence will comply with the subpoena or if he'll invoke claims of executive privilege. 
In Mississippi, a supermajority of white Republicans in the state House of Representatives has approved a bill to establish a separate court system and an expanded police force within the city of Jackson, which is 80 percent African-American in African-American. If the legislation becomes law, it'll place Mississippi's public safety commissioner, who is currently white in charge of an expanded Capitol Police force in Jackson. Local judges would be handpicked by Mississippi's Supreme Court Chief Justice, who is white, and prosecutors and public defenders would be selected by the state attorney general, who is also white. Voters in every other county court system in Mississippi elect judges and prosecutors. After viewing Tuesday's debate in the Mississippi House Gallery, Jackson Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba reportedly said, it reminds me of apartheid. Meanwhile, black lawmakers in Missouri are accusing Republicans of racism after House Speaker Dean Plocker, who is white, silenced African-American State Representative Kevin Windham during a floor debate Thursday. Windham was debating a bill that would allow the governor to appoint a special prosecutor in regions with high homicide rates. He was interrupted while reading from a Mississippi Today article about the disenfranchisement of black voters in Jackson, Mississippi. Mississippi's legislature is thoroughly controlled by white Republicans who have redrawn districts. Gentlemen, please state your point of order. The gentleman is talking about Mississippi uh, issues, and we were talking about House Bill 301 that's here in Missouri. If he could please stay on topic, I'd appreciate it. After State Representative Kevin Windham continued discussing the Mississippi legislation, the House Speaker cut his microphone and ended debate on the bill. The aggressive move prompted outrage among black lawmakers, including Missouri Legislative Black Caucus Chair Marlene Terry. There is a lot of racism going on here. It's racist that to, to not allow him to speak. We have to have permission to ask questions on the floor. There's a list that has to go around. You know, we, we're trying to work with them, and it's not working out. This comes after Missouri Republicans recently approved bills limiting public education about race, criminalizing drag shows, adopting a stricter dress code for women lawmakers, and blocked a proposed ban on children carrying guns in public without adult supervision. The Republican-controlled U.S. House of Representatives voted Thursday to overturn two Washington, D.C. bills. One would allow non-U.S. citizens to vote in local D.C. elections. The other overhauls the city's criminal code. Forty-two Democrats joined Republicans in their vote. Eleanor Holmes Norton, D.C.'s non-voting representative, said there's, quote, never justification for Congress nullifying legislation enacted by the district. I can only conclude that the Republican leadership believes that D.C. residents, a majority of whom are black and brown, are either unworthy or incapable of governing themselves. In other news from Washington, D.C., police arrested and charged a suspect after the assault of Minnesota Congressmember Angie Craig in the elevator of her apartment building Thursday morning. Her office said she's physically okay after the assault in which she defended herself by throwing hot coffee on the assailant. 
Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is meeting with President Biden at the White House today in Lula's first official visit to the United States since his inauguration as president on New Year's Day. The two leaders are expected to discuss threats to democracy, human rights, the environment, and Brazil's efforts to protect the Amazon. Reuters reports the U.S. government is considering joining the Amazon Fund, which fights deforestation of the Brazilian Amazon. Lula is also scheduled to meet with Democratic members of Congress, Senator Bernie Sanders and representatives of the AFL-CIO. Lula is joined by several of his cabinet members, including Environment Minister Marina Silva, who is expected to meet with Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, and Brazil's new Minister of Racial Equality, Agnelli Franco, the sister of the murdered Rio de Janeiro council member racial justice activist Marielle Franco. This comes as Brazil's federal police announced Friday they've launched an operation targeting illegal minors in the Yanomami indigenous territory where communities are fa facing a humanitarian catastrophe, largely due to the disastrous effects of illegal gold mining, which have displaced people, devastated the land and contaminated rivers and whole communities with mercury. The Nicaraguan government Thursday released over 200 political prisoners, including student and human rights activists and political opponents critical of President Daniel Ortega. The freed prisoners immediately went into exile after the U.S. government chartered a plane from the capital, Managua, and flew them to Washington, D.C. Two declined to leave Nicaragua, including a Roman Catholic bishop who reportedly said he preferred to remain a prisoner rather than go into exile. Among those released was Evelyn Pinto, a human rights defender who was sentenced to eight years in prison last year after she was arrested in 2021 during Ortega's crackdown on dissent ahead of that year's presidential election when he was re-elected for a fifth term. This is Pinto's daughter speaking from Dulles International Airport Thursday as she waited for her mother's arrival. My mother is someone who has fought for democracy in Nicaragua, for the rights of children, teenagers, and indigenous peoples. She was unjustly detained by the dictatorship, just like the rest of the political prisoners, on November 6, 2021. In Uganda, five activists were arrested Thursday as they protested the government's decision to close the country's U.N. Human Rights Office. The activists were from the group Torture Survivors Movement Uganda and said without the U.N. agency's presence, they felt helpless in the world against actions by the government of Yoweri Museveni. This comes just months after a U.N. committee said Ugandan forces regularly committed human rights abuses, including torture, excessive use of force and arbitrary detention. Longtime activist, writer, and beloved baker Jen Angel has died at the age of 48. She owned the popular community-based Angel Cakes in Oakland, California. She was a pioneering force in independent media, a co-founder of Clamor Magazine and Agency, an anarchist media organization. She was also a longtime organizer of the Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair. Jen Angel was actively involved in anti-war and anti-capitalist struggles through the years, including Occupy Wall Street. She died after she was critically injured in a violent robbery in Oakland earlier this week. In a statement, Angel's family and friends wrote, quote, We know Jen would not want to continue the cycle of harm by bringing state-sanctioned violence to those involved in her death or to other members of Oakland's rich community. As a longtime social movement activist and anarchist, Jen did not believe in state violence, carceral punishment, or incarceration as an effective or just solution to social violence and inequality, unquote. 
Jenny Angel's family has asked traditional prosecution be avoided in her case and alternatives such as restorative justice be employed instead. And David Harris has died at the age of 76. A key leader of the draft resistance movement of the 1960s, Harris actively encouraged young people to resist being conscripted into the Vietnam War. He served 20 months behind bars for his own draft refusal. He spent four of those months in solitary confinement for organizing prisoner protests demanding humane conditions. Joan Baez, his wife at the time, wrote a song for David while he was in prison. David Harris died of lung cancer on Monday at his home in Mill Valley, California. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we speak with longtime consumer advocate and presidential candidate Ralph Nader. But first, Joan Baez singing song for David. Joan Baez. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden traveled to Florida Thursday, where he blasted a proposal by Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida to require Medicare and Social Security be reauthorized every five years, which would put the future of the programs in doubt. Biden spoke in Tampa. I know that a lot of Republicans, their dream is to cut Social Security and Medicare. Well, let me say this. If that's your dream, I'm your nightmare. (laughs) Biden also focused on the future of Medicare and Social Security during a State of the Union Tuesday night. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. (laughs) Let me give you anybody who doubts it. As Congressmember Marjorie Taylor Greene, another Republican, shouted liar, um, President Biden continued to speak. Well, to talk more about this and many other issues, we're joined by the legendary consumer advocate, four-time former presidential candidate Ralph Nader, who's just launched a new newspaper called The Capitol Hill Citizen. Ralph, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. If you can start off by talking about uh, Medicare and Social Security— It's the Republicans who are going after it in a deep way now, uh, led by Senator Scott. And you can tell us his connections to um, for-profit health um, industry in this country. Uh, But it wasn't always just Republicans. 
Well, the Republicans oppose Social Security and Medicare from the get-go, and they've always been preying on it, uh, trying to corporatize it, trying to get its funds invested in the stock market and Wall Street. And um, so there's nothing new. Senator Scott, who in his prior work headed a giant uh, hospital corporation that was criminally fined uh, by the federal government, has no shame about that. He has proposed that it be uh, Social Security and Medicare be sunsetted uh, every five years, among other health and safety laws, in a report he put out as the chairman of the Senate Republican Re-election Committee last year. So there's no ambiguity about that. But the Democrats are very defensive. For example, the real problem with Medicare is being corporatized with the assistance of the uh, AFL and AARP. It's called Medicare Advantage. We call it Medicare Disadvantage. So over half now of the elderly beneficiaries under Medicare uh, are under a corporation's uh, health plan like United Health Care, Aetna, Cigna, and others. That's the problem. They're boring under Medicare and corporatizing while the Democrats are accusing Republicans of going after Medicare. And the same with Social Security. Congressman John Larson proposed uh, last year uh, increase in benefits. There haven't been an increase in benefits in 40 years. And he chided the Democrats in the Senate saying, make the Republicans filibuster. Make them get on the Senate floor under the television and show the American people what they're up to. But the Democrats didn't do it. So it's always unfinished business by the Democrats. It's easy to go after the Republicans on this, but can they go after the big health care industry, the drug industry? Ralph, that's speech, very uh, interesting, and I just want to say to you, as you're speaking to us, we're showing an image of page 9 of Capitol Hill Citizen. Uh, Medicare for all is the answer, but Bernie Sanders backs away, you write, uh, or the staff writes, um, and it says AFL-CIO AARP push Medicare disadvantage. Explain. Yes, this is the program supported, I might add, by both Republicans and Democrats in recent years in Congress uh, to, under the alleged claim of greater efficiency, uh, to let uh, contracts be um, given by Medicare to the large health insurance companies, as I mentioned, United Healthcare, Aetna, and they take control. And so they put ads all over. I mean, you can't believe last year. Saturation ads to elderly people in every medium possible, uh, basically saying, come into Medicare Advantage. You can get gym privileges, etc." But they don't say that they get trapped in a network of doctors and hospitals. They lose their free choice of hospital and doctor, and claims have to be approved by a bureaucracy established by these insurance companies. It's called prior authorization. It drives doctors crazy. It takes away their ability to minister to their patients. And they have a higher denial of benefits. That's why we call it Medicare disadvantage. And you can't get a hearing in Congress. Uh, you know, Bernie uh, denounced it. Uh, uh, others in the House denounced it. But they don't go any further. They're into the denunciation game. you got to really take it on. Because while we're not seeing the Democrats push single payer, which they should be, even though they are, are for it, they're watching the destruction of Medicare as we know it.
I want to go back to Biden's State of the Union, um, where he talks about taxes. I'm a capitalist, but pay your fair share. I think a lot of you at home, a lot of you at home agree with me and many people that you know the tax system is not fair. It is not fair. Look, the idea that in 2020, 55 of the largest corporations in America, the Fortune 500, made $40 billion in profits and paid zero in federal taxes? Zero? Folks, it's simply not fair. Can you talk about these proposals from uh, taxing corporations and billionaires to, oh, those who make like $400,000 or more? How many times do we have to hear that from Democratic presidents? It's, it's you know, ditto, ditto, ditto. They don't do anything. Uh, what he should have said is that the Democrats are going to repeal the Trump tax cuts of 2017, which are costing uh, the Treasury over a trillion dollars, because most of them are tax cuts for the super wealthy and the global corporation. No, he never even mentioned it. He, he, never, goes, uh, he never goes to the next step. He had, it was a palsy-wellsy speech. He talked about bipartisanship. What he should have said directly to the American people, you see all these good things I mentioned uh, that the Democratic Party are for and that the polls show majoritarian support for, like a, a paid child care, paid family sick leave, uh, consumer protection, etc. You see why... Uh, why why aren't we getting this through Congress? Well, take a look at the Republicans. They're the no party. They say no to all of these things. He would have drawn the line. Instead, he plays palsy-wellsy uh, with these Republicans who uh, uh, know what they want and, and are very determined to get it, which is no to social safety nets, no to peace movements, uh, no to controlling Wall Street, and no to renewable energy, no to... Um, the right to vote without being repressed, uh, he doesn't uh, go into that. It was a very disappointing speech. It was a, a laundry list uh, without uh, new ways on how to get it through Congress. He never appeals to the American people to come back on Congress. That's why we started the Capitol Citizen. And because the, the, the reporting on Congress is totally official source journalism by the mainstream press. And the Capitol Citizen digs in and shows how Congress is addicted to war, how they've given up constitutional powers such as the war declaring power to the presidents who can start wars on their own and do whatever they want abroad to advance the empire. Uh, we showed how they really didn't move to protect the IRS so they to have a decent budget to go after to these gigantic uh, escapes, uh, tax escapes and avoidance. So people can get a copy or more of the Capitol Hill Citizen by going to CapitolHillCitizen.com and donate $5 or more. You get your issue. You can get more issues for your friends and relatives and work uh, workers, and you'll get it first class. 40 pages, the most recent edition of the Capitol Citizen. Ralph, it I doesn't have it, it doesn't have ads by Big Pharma. It doesn't have ads by the uh, offensive weapons industry. Uh, it has book ads that are progressive. So, Ralph, I'm looking too. at the front page of corporate of the Capitol Hill Citizen. I want to just start um, with the tagline: "Democracy dies." 
in broad daylight, an obvious mocking of the Washington Post that says democracy dies in darkness. Talk about democracy dies in broad daylight. Yes, of all these things Congress is not doing is is quite important. I mean, if you make a list of all the justice causes you've had on your program, Amy, over over half uh, either have to go through Congress or are going to be blocked by Congress. We have to spend much more time on the 535 members of Congress because the way our Constitution is set up, um, most national progress under law, whether it's health care or tax reform or uh, cutting the military budget or waging peace uh, or public works uh, or the social safety net, the answer is it's got to go through Congress. And yet there's so many protests and demands that go up in the ether around the country without laser beam back on Congress. And that's why we have this Capitol Hill citizen, is to show it's all about Congress. And Congress has to be captured by the people instead of being controlled by 1,500 corporations who swarm the corridors. I mean, there are more full-time lobbyists by the drug industry on Congress than all the full-time lobbyists for all the national citizen groups by far in Washington, D.C. Ralph Nader, so I want to concentrate. I want to talk about the front page article in your January edition. Um, why no criminal investigation of Caterpillar after workers' death? The headline, The Thermal Annihilation of Stephen Dierkes. It's written by Russell McIver. There's a photograph of Stephen on the cover. And it begins by saying, on June 2nd, 2022, 39-year-old Stephen Dierkes, father of three young girls, checked in for work at the Caterpillar Foundry in Mapleton, Illinois. It was ninth day on the job. Dierkes was taking a sample of the 2,600-degree molten iron when he tripped and fell into the vat. There was no guardrail. There was no protection to keep him from falling in. Capitol Hill citizen obtained a copy of the Peoria County's coroner's report, cause of death, thermal annihilation. Can you talk more about this and about worker deaths in this country? Well, uh, worker deaths are up, according to OSHA, uh, last year. Uh, they're slated at about six, almost 6,000 traumatic deaths, but there are well over 50,000 work-related deaths due to diseases caught uh, on the premises, such as uh, uh, respiratory diseases, particulate matter, exposure to uh, all kinds of uh, silent forms of violence in these industrial workplaces. And Stephen Dirks uh, was not protected by guardrails. Imagine he was taking a sample with a pole and a cup at the end of the pole of molten iron at 2,600 degrees Fahrenheit, a vat. And somehow he stumbled. Nothing kept him from falling in, and he was thermally annihilated. OSHA gave the maximum fine of $145,000 to the giant Caterpillar company, whose foundries in Mapleton, Illinois. There is no felonious provision in the OSHA. We lost that fight in 1970. It's only a misdemeanor. So you can have a willful uh, situation that results in death, willful um, homicide, corporate homicide, and it's only a misdemeanor. And instead of 
taking this tragedy of Stephen Dirks as a George Floyd moment. The corporate homicide is far more prevalent in numbers than police homicides, bad as they are. The AFL stayed silent. The United Auto Workers, which has the uh, workers organized in that plant, has not done anything. Congress, the members of Congress from the district and the Senate, they haven't said anything. And it's very typical of occupational death by trauma and disease. These are the silent deaths, the silent funerals, the silent burials. Uh, Over 400,000 coal miners have died for their company in the last 100 years to coal mine coal miners' pneumoconiosis, not to mention shaft collapses at the, at the mines. So the Capitol Citizen highlighted this, and there's nothing but silence from Congress. So we you have also, to really, uh, in the article, the pressure. In the article, um, it says that Dirks was the second person to die at the Mapleton Caterpillar Foundry in just six months. No criminal investigation. As you said, the civil fine, $145,000. Um, what can Congress do to turn this around, to deal with the rise of worker deaths on the job and the lack of accountability of corporations? Well, there is a bill that the Democrats have proposed, led by Congressman Joe Courtney from Connecticut. But it's the same old story. They put the bill in, they put the press release, uh, they put their finger to the congressional wind, and then they do nothing. It's called press release legislative proposals. The Democrats are very good about that. What they should do is generate rallies outside Congress. They should go to the floor of the Senate with powerful speeches. They should go back home and talk about it. Uh, but they don't do that. But there is a bill, Protect Work, uh, American Workers Bill, it's called, uh, and people might be interested in reading about it in the Capitol Hill Citizen. There are all kinds of things that uh, democracy dying in broad daylight, as you said, is the motto of it. Uh, there are a lot of taboos. The, the corporate control of the Congressional Black Caucus is staggering, just staggering. Uh, and that's why we have very few investigations uh, of the inner city and what's going on in terms of the exploitation of African uh, Americans. We have uh, the confessions of a Starbucks wage slave. She called herself a Starbucks wage slave from West Virginia. Is an interview. I've never read anything like this. She said, I'm not talking about the workplace. I'm talking about the deadly stuff we have to put in our concoctions and, and, and feed to people who don't know that there are some concoctions that have 16 teaspoons of sugar in one glass. And uh, it's a very uh, sensitive this is the this is the last page of Capitol Hill Citizen. The last word: confessions of a West Virginia Starbucks wage slave. Like sixty percent of Americans, I live paycheck to paycheck. But then the pullout quote is: a venti or large peppermint mocha has ten tablespoons of syrup in it. Just under half of the cup is filled with syrup. Then there are espresso shots and steam milk. Then sweetened whipping cream. It's the equivalent of sixteen teaspoons of sugar in each cup. And the Congress has done very little on junk food regulation. That's created so much harm, especially to youngsters, uh, youth diabetes, overweight, uh, high blood pressure, 
these food companies have been documented, and they know what they're doing over the last decades, bypassing parental authority and guidance, undermining the parents, direct marketing to these kids. It's a half a trillion dollar industry a year, uh, Amy, and they don't do anything. So we, we want this capitalcitizen.com, go get some copies, spread the word. We've had a tremendous response to it so far around the country. So, Ralph, uh, can you people... talk about the role of local media and why you decided to launch this newspaper and also um, the sort of kind of Luddite nature of it? I mean, do, are all the articles on a website? We're doing a print-only uh, newspaper because there's too much clutter, too much interference, distraction. We've tried putting out our reports and other materials uh, on the internet. It's like a massive void. No matter how many people have access to it, it's uh, too much, uh, uh, too much clutter, uh, too much noise. So people write back and say, "I can't believe I'm holding a real newspaper in my hands. No clutter, no interference, no distraction. Thank you." So uh, we think that uh, there's a study coming out in about three months, a very uh, scientific study showing that people, including students, retain more when they read something in print than when they see it on the screen, among other interferences, which my sister Claire Nader has pointed out in her new book, You Are Your Best Teacher, Sparking the curiosity, imagination in tweens. This is a real crisis here of the Internet wardens, the Internet gulag, uh, abducting our children five to six hours a day into the worst kind of experiences, increasing teenage depression and many other things. And we have to wake up to it, and, and we have to wake Congress up to it. Whether we like it or not, Congress is the linchpin for democracy or autocracy. And they're giving up their power uh, to the executive branch to generate war and to express their fealty to Wall Street. Finally, uh, we just have 30 seconds, but the um, not exactly death, but the absolute diminution of local media in this country. Local media is dying because of lack of imagination and community organizing. There's no reason why communities can't have a, a weekly uh, with a nonprofit community newspaper, three streams of revenue, subscriptions, advertisements, and charitable contributions. And we're trying to prove it by launching this month the Winston Citizen. I was a paper boy for the Winston Evening Citizen. It had six issues a week, every day but Sunday. And now... Uh, there are the towns in Connecticut that don't even have a weekly. So we're launching the Winston Citizen. Uh, Associated Press just wrote an article on it. Well, Ralph, we're going to link to the Winston Citizen and also Capitol Hill Citizen. Again, it is a paper newspaper. Uh, its motto, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight. Ralph Nader, longtime consumer advocate, corporate critic, former presidential candidate, founder of this new newspaper, Capitol Hill Citizen. When we come back, Longtime labor organizer Socket Sony on The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. I could hear a song ringing in my ears. So I wrote it down for my love to hear. Melody so sweet. 
Love Song by Sasami, dedicated to the late, great Jen Angel. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to the issue of labor coming to this country uh, and being trapped here, as the rate of climate-fueled disasters intensifies, we spend the rest of the hour looking at the immigrant workers lured into forced labor by corporations who hire them to clean up after hurricanes, floods, blizzards, and wildfires. This is what longtime labor organizer Saket Sony writes about in his new book, The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. Saket Sony is the director of Resilience Force. He first joined us in 2007, when the story was still unfolding, with a man named Sabulal, one of hundreds of guests workers from India protesting conditions at a shipyard they were hired to clean up in Pascagoula, Mississippi, after Hurricane Katrina by the company Signal International. When I stepped into my man camp, which is provided in the yard of uh, Signal International, I just surprised that because uh, uh, in my 20 years of experience, I didn't meet such a situation because um, there was 24 people in a room. Like, uh, I think it's a pig in a cage. The men were fired when they complained about their living and working conditions, but they didn't stop there. Socket Sony recently joined us from New Orleans to share more about the great escape he documents in his new book. I asked him to take us back to 2006, when he received a mysterious call from an inside a heavily guarded work camp in Pascagoula, Mississippi, where hundreds of welders and pipe fitters had been recruited from India to come to the Gulf Coast to repair oil rigs after Hurricane Katrina. Thanks, Amy. Um, that's right. It started with a mysterious midnight phone call after Hurricane Katrina. I was a labor organizer running a scrappy, small workers' rights nonprofit. And um, this was a time when the post-Katrina flooding had turned the U.S. Gulf Coast into the world's largest construction site. I was protecting the workers who were doing the cleanup and the rebuilding. Most of these were black and brown workers who would stand in the morning under a giant 60-foot-tall statue of Robert E. Lee when contractors would take, pick them up and take them out to do the rebuilding of the distant, dark corners of the Gulf Coast. That's what I was doing. Um, those are the workers I was talking to when I got the mysterious phone call. Um, the person who called me was, unlike most of the workers who called, he wasn't from Mississippi or Louisiana. He wasn't either white, black, or Latino. He was an Indian man flown in from India, calling from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I thought, what was an Indian man doing coming here to clean up uh, after Hurricane Katrina, all the way from North India? Uh, I discovered that he was one of 500 workers who had been recruited to come to Mississippi and Texas to work for a large oil rig builder to clean up, rebuild shipyards and oil rigs. Um, and when he arrived in the Gulf Coast, he found himself in atrocious conditions. These men had been promised green cards 
and good jobs in India and had been um, told that they would get those if they paid $20,000 a piece. $20,000. I mean, that is generations of savings. Workers sold ancestral land. Um, they took on um, extraordinary loans from violent loan sharks to come. But when they arrived, they found themselves not on green cards, but on temporary work visas in labor camps in company property. And talk about the security uh, on the company property, not exactly security for them, but for the company signal that still exists, right? Well, um, the company Signal International decided to build a labor camp on company property. Um, this was a series of trailers that were uh, placed on a toxic waste dump. Um, the workers were living there, 24 people to a trailer. Um, the labor camp, which the company itself called a man camp facility, was surrounded by a barbed wire fence. Workers were working uh, round the clock in 12-hour shifts um, to build these um, oil rigs for the company. Uh, this was a private equity-owned rising behemoth in the Gulf Coast, uh, Signal International. And they were getting these workers, the most skilled workers in the world, at a fraction of the cost of U.S. workers. Um, there were security guards. The men were only allowed out of the labor camp, chaperoned by American security guards. And the places they were allowed to go to were Walmarts, uh, where they would buy uh, provisions to come back. That's how the workers lived. Those were the living conditions. What about the food? The food was atrocious, atrocious. Um, the workers were given most mornings uh, stale bread and frozen rice. There were no microwaves, Amy, on the work site. So the way the men would eat the frozen rice would be to suck on it. The work would the men would suck on frozen ricicles um, in order to gain the sustenance um, uh, to do their really difficult and dangerous work. In fact, the whole great escape, the the uh, escape out of a heist film that's at the center of the book, uh, was actually imagined and engineered over a secret of uh, over a, a series of clandestine meetings that featured food. I started partnering with a man deep inside the labor camp, uh, a worker named Rajan, someone who is. Um, he was a labor organizer's dream. He was extraordinary. He taught me about the pressures on the men. He taught me about the conditions at the labor camp. But he also taught me to cook. And over a series of months, I would smuggle into him spices and ingredients um, to create Indian food. He commandeered the kitchen in the labor camp. And through a series of magical meals, um, he brought the men back to life from their catatonic state. And he convinced them then uh, to undertake the great escape uh, at the center of the book. Um, I, I don't want to give too much away, but um, oh, it you involved— Oh, you have to. Socket, you have to tell well, us the story of what happened. Well, uh, it, you know, it, it involved bribes for the guards in, uh, in, in the, you know, involving wild turkey, whiskey, flavored cigars— and Rajan and I created an elaborate 
pretext, a fictitious Indian wedding, uh, to ferry the men out of the labor camp five at a time under the noses of the guards to put them on the path uh, of a freedom journey. The men um, escaped overnight from the labor camp, came back the next morning, threw their hard hats in protest uh, back at the company's gates, saying uh, that they were leaving the company. And then they set off on a march to Washington. What we didn't know then uh, was that there was uh, an agent uh, deep in the government who was unraveling our plans. But but we set off that heady morning um, uh, for Washington, thinking um, that justice was at hand. And take it from there. Can you tell us the journey that they took? Sure. Well, um, when the men escaped from the labor camp, um, they filed a civil lawsuit against the company. Um, but the path to legal status for them was a Department of Justice human trafficking complaint. Human trafficking is a crime, and the men were alleging that this company and their recruiters had trafficked them from India um, to Mississippi and Texas uh, and held them in forced labor. Uh, the men were counting on the Department of Justice opening an investigation. We now had—I uh, personally now had the problem of hiding 500 brown men in Louisiana. So we, we hid out in a hotel in New Orleans that uh, had been um, ruined by Hurricane Katrina, flooded by Hurricane Katrina. Um, we hid for over a week, but there was radio silence from the DOJ. So we set out, like many people in social movements past, we decided to come out of hiding and come out as undocumented uh, to the government, and we proceeded on a march to Washington. Along the way, we met with civil rights figures who gave us strength. And um, although the men had it hard, I mean, we were walking uh, on the sides of roads through Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia. Uh, passing cars were full of passengers who were jeering us. Bottles were being pelted at the workers uh, from open windows and passing cars. But nonetheless, the men's spirits were high because they believed that when they got to Washington— they would get justice. In their particular English, they actually called it the Department for Justice. Um, and, and they believed they would just get to Washington um, and, um, and they would get the status uh, that they deserved, the special humanitarian visas designated for trafficking victims. What we didn't know was that the fight would take three years, because deep inside the government, there was a federal agent, an immigration cop, with his own corrupt ties to the company and with his own secret motivations to unravel our plans. On our way to Washington, we uncovered surveillance uh, and we uncovered uh, a whole federal dragnet that was working its own machinations to jail and deport these men even before they got to Washington. So, Saka, you have to stop there, because what are you talking about? There's someone in the Justice Department who has a tie to Signal Corporation? Not in the Justice Department, but at the federal immigration agency called Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Um, there's uh, an ICE. immigration cop who lives—ICE, who lives in Mississippi— um, 
who has his own motivations um, for colluding with the company. So now that the workers are on their march and headed to Washington, he appoints himself as the investigator for the DOJ. When the Department of Justice launches an investigation, they bring in um, a, a law enforcement official to investigate. We've been waiting at this point in the story for ICE to bring in the FBI. We did get a call from the FBI, but after that, they were nowhere to be found. When the investigation actually did start, an ICE agent came forward to tell us he was in charge of the investigation. And again, I don't want to give a lot away, but this very ICE agent had his own ties to the company, had been working for, with the company for, for years and years, um, and now was in charge of the investigation. What he was doing, though, Amy, was... Uh, we'd find out later, wasn't uh, investigating the workers. He was turning the investigation into uh, a weapon against the workers. He was trying to frame the men we were representing, the 500 Indian workers, as the criminals, um, and uh, working to jail and deport them. And so this is not just a story of a corporation that is exploiting, that is, to say the least— not just terrorizing, but deeply abusing these workers. But it's a story of corporate government complicity. Talk more about what the government knew, what the government did and didn't know along the way. Well, you know, in the right at the middle of the story, uh, there's this smoking gun that, that we find. Um, it's the astonishing revelation uh, of a long-standing collusion uh, between Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE uh, police, uh, and the company. And, and it really gets at, Amy, what we see all the time. I've seen this for years and years in my uh, work as a labor organizer uh, after disasters and also across the South, which is that companies have at their behest um, cops who moonlight as private security, immigration agents uh, who work deeply with the company uh, to keep workers feeling like they can't come forward and report abuse um, because they might be deported, they might be punished. In this story, um, when a few brave workers came forward to meet with me clandestinely, and after that, these brave workers demanded things from the company, not anything major. Their demands were hot tea in the morning, because they'd get up in the morning in the cold and need to warm themselves to go to work. They demanded microwaves on site so that they could um, warm up their frozen rice. These were their collective demands. I mean, it is a sad day in 21st century America when workers have to press collective demands, not for union rights, respect, and a contract, but for microwaves on site in their labor camp on company property uh, to uh, warm up their rice. Those were their demands. And for making those demands, uh, the, the company worked with uh, law enforcement agencies to punish the workers. And that was um, the details of that revelation were ultimately uh, what blew all this up in Washington. And I, I tell that story in The Great Escape. 
And talk about what happened when the workers and you—I mean, we're talking about hundreds of workers who escaped from a Mississippi labor camp um, uh, there to clean up after Hurricane Katrina, and then they make their way to Washington. What happens there? Well, one of the things that happens is we're coming out of um, a civil rights uh, memorial on the way to Washington. And uh, we look up and we see a man surveilling us. We see a man recording us. Um, there's a chase scene that's uh, recounted in the book up to the top of the building, around the block, and all the way to a parked, uh, what looks like a parked uh, construction van, uh, a contractor's van. I thought it was, uh, you know, some kind of self-appointed white vigilante operation and flung open the doors of the van. Inside it was the Alabama director of ICE conducting a surveillance operation. So, you know, uh, that was when it came to light that, that the ICE dragnet was surveilling us. As we got to Washington, um, we realized that the conspiracy between the government and uh, the company went deeper and deeper. It wasn't just one or two ICE agents, but a whole network um, of, uh, of uh, uh, law enforcement officials that surveilled us all over again uh, in Falls Church in Virginia, right as we were going into uh, Washington. So, you know, what, what we were very clear about coming into Washington was Washington wouldn't be easy. D.C. would be a fight. Um, when the campaign hit the rocks in D.C., um, my partner, Rajan, and I, uh, over an elaborate meal, uh, came up with the next escalation. Uh, Rajan cooked our—you know, we had become close friends. Every friendship has its rituals. We never solved problems uh, uh, over a whiteboard. We, we solved problems over extraordinary meals. And one night uh, that's recounted in the book, uh, Rajan cooked— uh, an elaborate, mysterious uh, Bedouin dish called al-Kabza. It has uh, rice, meat, and 22 spices. And we came up with a plan over that meal for a hunger strike in Washington, D.C. And that was the next step. We, uh, we, I recount the story in the book about a long hunger strike over the course of which all of Washington is talking about these workers. But the ICE agent uh, blocking our plans holds steadfast. Um, so even in D.C., even with the world watching, even with the Department of Justice investigating, uh, the company uh, and its uh, allies in law enforcement were still strong enough to hold back um, our our justice march uh, and uh, you know and keep the workers uh, undocumented and on a pathway to being deported. So, Sakatsoni, in this remarkable story that you tell, the Great Escape, um, you. Bring us back to 2005, Hurricane Katrina, the cleanup. But 2005 is a few years after the 9-11 attacks, 2001. Can you talk about what happened with ICE, with DHS, the anti-immigrant fervor in this country? Um, and then what these guest worker programs are all about? Well, 9-11 was a, a very pivotal um, moment for America. It was a, a tragic event, but followed after that by multiple other tragedies. Um, one of the impacts of 9-11 uh, was that 
immigrants lost their foothold in normal American life. Um, immigrants like me, I came to the United States as a foreign student before 9-11. Um, I was actually uh, uh, in Chicago. I arrived from New Delhi to Chicago to study at the University of Chicago. Uh, I was getting a theater degree. My parents were probably the only parents in the history of Indian civilization uh, who said it was okay for their son to go to America to become a theater director. And that's what happened. That's what I was doing when I missed an immigration deadline. Um, that was before 9-11. So I, I just took it as um, a routine thing, something I could fix. Um, I didn't think it was more serious than an unreturned library book. And I have a lot of those. And then 9-11 happened. Um, and I lost my foothold in America, like lots and lots of immigrants. Um, we were underground, working without papers, um, you know, uh, doing our best through a, a, a string of low-wage service sector jobs. 9-11 was also a pivotal moment uh, for immigration policy. Um, immigrant rights activists were really close to immigration reform uh, and a large-scale legalization before 9-11. Um, those plans uh, were gutted after 9-11 after because of the anti-immigrant backlash uh, that was not connected to uh, the perpetrators and motivations behind 9-11, but, but came from an opportunism in American politics uh, to uh, congeal uh, an anti-immigrant sentiment uh, in in America, a sentiment that only grew after that. So 9-11 was a really, really, uh, really, really uh, great turning point. As you publish this book now, um, we're right on the end of the catastrophes in, uh, that California is experiencing. Your book, you know, takes place in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, uh, which many see as the dawn of the era of climate disasters. But can you talk about the connection between what happened then right through to now and what you're looking at with, to say the least, um, uh, the knowledge and organizing you have behind you. Absolutely. You know, what I didn't know then, Amy, was that these workers uh, who came from India um, were among the first workers um, that would be a rising workforce, workers who we now call the resilience workforce, uh, the workers who largely immigrant, uh, largely undocumented, mostly vulnerable, uh, the workers who rebuild after uh, climate disasters, the workers who continue to clean up, uh, repair, heal, and rebuild after hurricanes, floods, and fires. Um, the workers who I represented after Hurricane Katrina, the workers who would uh, you know, gather under the statue of Robert E. Lee in uh, New Orleans, or workers like the ones in this book who were in labor camps, were among the first resilience workers. Um, Katrina was supposed to have been a once-in-a-hundred-year flood. That's what it was called, uh, an event that would not happen for another hundred years. Well, since Katrina, um, as a result of climate change, disasters have become more frequent uh, and more destructive. There have been, since Katrina, over $200 billion disasters. And as disasters have grown, this workforce has grown. And these workers do all this without legal protections, without legal status. Uh, they often uh, have to fight to be paid. Um, 
and and if they fall off roofs, they're often left at the doorstep of hospitals uh, for dead. This is how we're doing recovery in America. Um, and that's what we at Resilience Force uh, are trying to change. Saket Sony, director of Resilience Force, author of the new book, The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. Special thanks to photographer Ted Quant. And that does it for our show. Happy birthday to Messiah Rhodes. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guster, Messiah Rhodes. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.